case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sig- virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Yeah. Hello, I'm Roxana Khan-Williams and you'll be hearing a lot more from me in the coming weeks. Today, I wanted to give you a special snippet from the recent event we hosted for the launch of the annual State of Hate publication back in March. I want to introduce our keynote speaker, David Lammy, MP, who spoke powerfully about the events of the past year and our need to move forward in the fight for justice and against fascism. For everybody who is out there who is feeling intimidated, frightened, scared, cowed, by extremism um, in our country and by the hate that it spews. I really, really want to thank you for inviting me to speak um, in the wake of what is a very, very worrying report. Now, I found that making speeches over Zoom is not ideal, um, certainly not the way I like to make um, speeches. So what I want to do is offer some broad reflections really uh, on some of the things that struck me whilst reading um, the report. The first is to say or to recognise that in this last year uh, we also saw of course the death of George Floyd and his murder at the hands of police officers Uh, and at that moment the world, the global community paused, perhaps because it was a pandemic and people were at home, glued to the news. They focused in for the first time, particularly on race and racism. I received calls um, from so many organisations. I seem to be one of the first ports of call uh, in this country on issues of race and diversity. Um, from long-lost friends, from not-for-profits, from FTSE 100 companies asking how they could improve racial diversity in their uh, boardrooms. Um, On the one hand, uh, I'm incredibly grateful to be given the platform to speak um, about black people and broadly to lead parts of the conversation. On the other hand, I can't help but think, why aren't you asking those in power? And it's important to say that 97% of Britain's elite is controlled by white people. Just 36 of a thousand of the UK's top political, judicial, financial, cultural and security roles are held by ethnic minorities. Black unemployment, It's now running at 9% compared to an average of 4%. And there's a 13% attainment gap between black and white students at university. The very idea of the social contract is supposed to bind us together for the benefit and peace of all. But when rights and resources are allocated along racial lines, communities of colour and of difference rightly question why this social contract was designed in the first place. The social contract that binds all of us to the law in this country dates back to the Magna Carta, which states no one, 
no one will we deny or delay right or justice. Yet 800 years later, the disproportionality that people of colour face in this country is flying in the face of the very legislation which underpins the foundation of our society. Black people are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. Black, Asian and minority ethnic people make up 51% of the youth justice system whilst representing 14% of the general population. And the challenge of hate in Britain today is that it exists from top to bottom. And this report shows not only how widespread hate is, but very, very sadly and worryingly how entrenched it is. To some extent, I'm a bit of a Twitter addict. I'd say that I usually tweet around 10 times a day on a quiet day, usually a mixture of pointing out um, prime ministerial cock-ups to pictures of my dog uh, or cakes that my wife and I have baked on our children's birthday. The comments on my tweets range from messages of support to pointing out how atrociously Spurs are performing in the Premier League. However, in August last year, one Twitter user said that I should hang from a lamppost. It took days before this user's account was suspended, only after myself and members of the government called out this abuse. Social media platforms aren't just a place for people to freely spout racial abuse. They're also a means of organisation for groups where hate is at the core of their ideology. As this report shows, the far right scene has flourished online, with social media companies being far too slow to ban these groups. One study shows that far right attacks have increased by a staggering 250% globally since 2014, to a level not seen in the last 50 years. Brenton Tarrant, who murdered 51 people outside mosques in New Zealand, frequented right-wing discussion boards on 4chan and 8chan, and said that he found YouTube to be a significant source of information and inspiration. He then was able to live stream his brutal murders on Facebook and had published his white supremacist manifesto online. Robert Bowers, who attacked the Jewish community in Pittsburgh in 2018 and murdered 11, was a follower of online provocateurs on the fringes of the far right. He promoted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories online and posted photos of the weapons that he would use in his attack. The fallout of the pandemic and the impending recession will provide fertile ground for terrorist groups wanting to recruit those who are disillusioned with social reality. Social media platforms need to ensure that they are prepared for this eventuality and can break their media coverage and online social networks. Government and security services need to get to grips with the less well-known sites such as Gab, Parler and BitChute to prevent the indoctrination of people who feel adrift of society. As this report points out, far-right individuals and organisations are dynamic in their use of different platforms for different purposes. 
social media platforms need to be just as dynamic in shutting them down. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and many others were created out of democracies and aimed to give a voice to anyone, anywhere. These platforms must be equally wary of those who seek to undermine such freedoms. The relationship between disinformation and extremism is a symbiotic one. Both feed off one another and, if left alone, can spiral out of control. The users of social media are not the only ones to blame for the spread of fake news. The responsibility lies with those who have a voice, including, of course, mainstream politicians. Only a few months ago, we witnessed the deaths of five individuals after a group of far-right extremists marched on the Capitol building in Washington. Many were inspired both by President Trump's false allegations of voter fraud, but were also adherents to QAnon as a cult. Just a few months earlier, Donald Trump warned Black Lives protesters that when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Often, conspiracy theorists and their adherents are taught of as simply existing in the fringes of society, yet they are far more entrenched than people might think. One recent poll taken shortly after the attack on the Capitol found that 29% of Republican adults subscribed to the theories that were being espoused by QAnon. During the pandemic, conspiracy theories flourished in an environment where all of us relied on news from inside our homes. Since the rollout of the vaccine, all efforts have been focused on making and distributing the vaccine. No one ever asked what happens when people do not want it. Although some believe that COVID-19 is a deep state conspiracy, there are far more who are simply hesitant. In a time when members of our government tell us that Britain has had enough of experts, it comes as no surprise that there are many who have a lack of trust in the guidance that they are giving. Social media has become a breeding ground for conspiracy theorists over the past year. Anti-vaxxer groups have collapsed, or capitalised, sorry, on some of the most common concerns to spread disinformation while sowing fear and distrust amongst vulnerable groups. And those in positions of authority need to understand how fragile the public's trust is in our institutions and how limited, if you like, that trust has become. It's up to them, myself included, to show the public why they should put their trust in them. Whether it's anti-black racism, online hate or conspiracies, we need to ask ourselves, why is it that the majority of these people are men? Most distressingly, we need to ask ourselves why it took the murder of Sarah Everhard in our country for us to ask this question. Of all of the problems that we have, that have, have, have been exacerbated by the pandemic, violence toward women has not received the attention it needs. It was only a year ago, the height of the pandemic, that my wife and I heard the news that our friends, two daughters, Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry, were murdered in Wembley. They were meeting friends in a park to celebrate Bieber's birthday and were found stabbed to death the following day. Their mother then learned those police officers 
had taken selfies with her daughter's dead bodies. Unfortunately, the story of violence and abuse against women is an all too common occurrence. A woman is murdered by a man in this country every three days. 97% of women aged 18 to 24 have been sexually harassed, with a further 19% not reporting those situations because of their belief that it would change, it would not change a thing. The situation has become so critical in the UK throughout the pandemic that women's refuges have had to turn women away due to the increase in demand. A decade of government cuts to women's organisations have left these organisations unprepared to deal with the scale of the issue. Solace Women's Aid, which runs 22 refugees in London, said that they were unable to take 700 calls in September last year due to a lack of resources. Our culture, entrenched by a patriarchal society, fuels this hate. It is acceptable to intimidate women on the street, to comment on their body and give women a fear of assault. This is made acceptable because men get away with it. Only 1.4% of reported rapes resulted in a suspect being charged. Once again, our social contract is not doing what it was set up to do. After reading the report on the state of hate, as well as listening to what I've said so far, it is understandable that some of you might feel hopeless. Yet what this past year has given us is a renewed sense of responsibility, both for ourselves and others around us. After the murder of George Floyd, people around the world came together to show their opposition to injustices. Governments and intergovernmental organisations are getting together on social, uh, on social media uh, companies to do more to tackle online hate and discrimination. The tireless work of women's groups and politicians has led to police now identifying and recording misogynistic hate crimes. From Black Lives Matter's protests to the criminalization of misogyny, these movements reflect a broader ambition. And it is an ambition for building institutions that work for everyone. It is, it is about rethinking a social contract that does not just believe in equality, but also in equity. After having been in some form of lockdown for almost a year, people in this country have been sitting at home and have had a chance to reflect on some of the events that have shocked all of us. The death of George Floyd, the storming of the Capitol, the murder of Sarah Everhard. They have forced everyone to take note and call for those in power to make changes. Hate thrives in an environment of complacency. complacency. Hope, not hate, does vital work to ensure that everyone has to be aware of the scale of the problem. We must do everything we can to protect the substantive power of the movement. Keep fighting for genuine transformative change. We cannot allow these issues to be pulled into a culture war in which governments pit us against one another. Those who are most fearful of change push these issues into a toxic trench so that they can gain the upper ground. We must keep focused on the goal, eradicating structural racism and discrimination from all areas of society, employment, housing, education, health, 
the criminal justice system. We cannot look back in five years and remember the events of last year as just another item in the news cycle. We have to transform our righteous anger into meaningful reform. The fundamental truth is that change does not come about by letting other people do the work for you. Change comes about when every one of us fights injustice, when we see it. And this report shows the scale of the challenge we are facing. It's up to us to bend the arc of justice in the right direction. Thank you very much. In that case, Hope Not Hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backward, these backward thinking, virtue, sig- virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to that. And I hope you agree with me that that was a really inspiring speech from David. Change really does have to be made by every one of us. In order to produce more content like the event with David, our long-term investigations and reportage of the far right, we really need your help. I wanted to remind you all that reviews, even the bad ones, really help us to reach new audiences for the podcast and growing the audience is part of creating an anti-racist politics of hope. So review the podcast and share it widely. Thank you so much.